Well, in our studies uh, through the book of Isaiah, uh, this morning we come to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And even uh, if we sort of are only familiar in a background sense with Isaiah 6, then not much of the rest. We come to Isaiah 40, and all of a sudden, uh, this becomes very familiar to us again, uh, partly because of its use in the New Testament, of course, uh, partly if you like Handel's Messiah, a lot of this has been set to music. Uh, I almost feel, I, well, I don't almost feel, I do feel aesthetically like reading this chapter out of the King James, but I'm not going to read the Word of God for aesthetic reasons, uh, so I'm going to stay uh, with the translation that we normally Use. But this is one of the highlights uh, in all of world literature, and it's the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 40, uh, we'll read the entire chapter. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged place is a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because of the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely, the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and He rules with a mighty arm. See, His reward is with Him, and His recompense accompanies Him. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, or with the breadth of His hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as His counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten Him, and who taught Him the right way? Who was it that taught Him knowledge, or showed Him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught 
and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings at the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Before we work through this passage this morning, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ought always to be aware of how uh, finite we are, how limited we are, and how, how great You are. Lord, help us to know You better as the God of whom these things in this chapter are true. Help us to know You as You are. Lord, we would pray that You would forgive us for our sins. Pray that You will place our sins under the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to be humble enough to receive and to accept grace. Help us to be a people who do not try to impress you, uh, for you are a God, as this chapter shows, who is not easily impressed by what we can do. Help us to receive the gift of life as a gift from your hand. God, help us to live for you. Help us to know you. Help us to honor you. Lord, draw us close to Yourself, and we thank You that in, in this chapter, you, you very vividly and in picturesque ways show us that You do draw us to Yourself. You come to us. Even as we run from You, You reach down like a shepherd and You draw us back, and You pick us up, and You carry us close to Your heart. Lord, help us to understand you, and shape us into your image, into the image of your Son, for we ask it in His holy name. Amen. Now, Isaiah, as a book in terms of structure, has a very obvious shift from the first 39 chapters to chapters 40 through 66. And you can subdivide uh, chapters 40 through 66 as well, just like you can subdivide chapters 1 through 39. Uh, But the major dividing block in the book structurally occurs now. Uh, Last week, we looked at the four narrative chapters uh, with Hezekiah and the Assyrians and Hezekiah and the Babylonians. So you're supposed to retain that, but you've now moved from lessons, uh, concrete historical lessons in those two object lessons with Hezekiah, which were illustrating the truth of the first chunk of the book, which was, trust in God, not people and nations, and lots of judgment. Uh, don't forget, I mean, we, we move through those chapters rapidly. We, we combined a lot of them together. 
But it was message after message after message in the context of the book of judgment against nation after nation after nation, including Israel and Judah. And then the little apocalypse, even though God will eventually destroy death itself, He also, in a sense, purges the entire world. So you're supposed to have those themes, and there's almost a sense which, yes, there's highlights of grace running throughout, but if you're thoughtful, you come out of Isaiah 1 through 39 with messianic promises, but you're limping. You're, you're a little discouraged. Uh, there's, there's a lot of wrath. There's a lot of blackness, a lot of darkness, a lot of sin. And then you hit this section where God says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, preachers like to say things like, if I had more time, I'd like to work through this text for a number of weeks. And usually what they mean by that is, I'd like you to think I have lots of good things to say about it, but I really don't. So I'm going to just take one week to talk about this text, and you'll have to imagine all of the wonderful things that I could say about it. Uh, sort of like just, just getting a, a free, easy build-up uh, in terms of perception. But the truth is this chapter would be worth taking multiple weeks to go through. Uh, and one of the things that would be worth doing is actually working through it with Isaiah 40 in context, and then moving to the New Testament showing how Isaiah 40 is picked up in the Gospels, for example, uh, showing how verses 6 through 8 are picked up in First Peter, for example. So there's a lot of, uh, this chapter provides with a lot of intertextuality throughout the Scriptures as well. New Testament authors drawing in Isaiah 40 all the time, okay? Uh, not least of which would just be with John the Baptist uh, in the Gospels in fulfillment of, you know, verses 3 uh, through 4 of this chapter. So, having said that, this is one that you really ought to work through on your own. Uh, this week at the Good Friday service at 10 o'clock, uh, I'm going to try to cover some of the servant songs in Isaiah, in Isaiah 52 and 53. So, you want to read those chapters, but spend some time this week. I know you, a lot of you have your own devotional plan, but this is worth doing work through Isaiah 40. Uh, and you can even, you know, there, there's actually something now, uh, the, the, the internet. And, and so you can even like, like you can even Google these sorts of things. I think Google's a verb. Uh, and so you can Google these things and, you know, plug in Isaiah 40, just look up these verses and cross-reference. Like this is worth working through and you can do that on your own. So I'm just giving you some highlights, just some structural highlights and feeling awfully inadequate uh, none of that counted for my time starting now. Okay, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's fascinating. Out of all of the wrath and judgment now, the prophet is commanded to comfort God's people. This is God comforting His people through commanding the human prophet to, pro to proclaim this message which, if you're thoughtful, immediately tells you that one of the ways God comforts people is through other people. Isaiah has been told to proclaim message after message after message, yes, of messianic promise, but of judgment, 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 and wrath. And this same prophet who has had to, ever since Isaiah 6 when he's given his commission, and told, keep proclaiming and no one will listen. I'll close their ears and blind their eyes and harden their hearts. And Isaiah says, for how long? Till the land is ruined, like a great tree cut down. Just only a stump remains. Until there's only a tenth remaining. And even then I'll destroy it again. And Isaiah has been laboring under that. All of these oracles of judgment. And God says, Isaiah, okay, now, now you, my servant, I want you to speak comfort to my people and tell them the comfort comes from their God. This is the recapturing of that special covenantal language. The highest blessing of the covenant is, you will be my people, 
and I will be your God. And so when Isaiah is told, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, he's being reminded, remember all of the blessings of the covenant? They're still in force. All of this wrath, all of this judgment, you are still my people. And if you can't draw comfort from God being your God and you belonging to Him as His people, then nothing will comfort you. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak literally to the heart of Jerusalem. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Isaiah, I want you to be my agent of comfort. I equip you. I give you the power of words. I give you the power of verbal expression. I will fill your mouth and your heart and your mind with words and messages, and I want you to use those words to speak right to the very heart of my people. Communicate, their com- communicate my comfort. Communicate my love. Communicate my acceptance. Speak directly to the heart of Jerusalem and tell her. Her warfare is accomplished. Warfare, uh, King James will translate it this way. It's literally warfare, but it's an idiom. And so it's actually right to translate it as hard service. It's not about, because they're not, a, they're not at war. It's the long, hard, difficult road that you've been on. Metaphorically, you've been in the battle. You've been waging war. That time is complete. Your sin has been paid for. That is, there is ransom, there is redemption, there is atonement. The reason you were suffering was because of sin. That time is over. Your sin has been paid for. You have received from the Lord's hand double. There's an ambiguity here, actually. It just text it leaves with double, and we don't know is that double in terms of punishment or double in terms of blessing. No one really knows. The text doesn't say. It's not, it doesn't specify it in the original. What you're being told, though, is this. What you have been experiencing, this difficult time, this wrath and judgment, that phase is over. You've received everything there was to receive for these sins. Now you're being comforted. Now you're being spoken to. Your very heart is being spoken to. Now you will hear a different message. Verses 3 through 5 are verses that we are familiar with. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. We know this is John the Baptist. Now, it's fascinating here, too, is that John the Baptist is so important that he is the prophet who points directly to the Messiah, but he's also the subject of prophecy. It is Isaiah prophesies about John the prophet, whose whole job is to point to Christ, which just shows you how important Christ is. Even the one who points to him is the subject of prophecy. Isaiah says, someone is going to come along who is going to prepare the way for the Lord. doesn't say much about John the Baptist, but it says an awful lot about the importance of the Messiah. Messiah's forerunner prophet is so important, he's prophesied about because of his relationship to Messiah. Who are you preparing the way for? It's for the Lord. Who are you making a highway for in the desert? It's for God. And every valley is raised up, and every hill is brought low. In other words, every obstacle is being eliminated. You don't have to hike up and down. You don't follow the contours. What's happening is when God is coming, everything is made one level road. Every obstacle is eliminated. And where is this text fulfilled? When does God show up? According to the Gospels, this is John, the voice is John the Baptist, and he's preparing the way for the Lord. Who's the Lord? Who shows up? It's Jesus. This is a, one of those, those texts which actually, in terms of prophetic interpretation, is, a high, is high evidence for a high view of Christology. That is, Jesus Christ is fully God. He's the fulfillment of the Lord showing up in the desert. Yahweh Himself shows up. God shows up incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. Literally, all flesh will see it together. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You'll remember Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. It's not that the earth isn't filled with His glory. It's that we don't have eyes to see. But now what we're being told is that when the Lord reveals Himself, He will reveal His glory in such a way that all flesh will see it together. It will be undeniable. No one will be able to deny the existence and the nature and the power and the glory of God in that day. And how do we know? How do we know that this will happen? It's because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. When God says something, it's as good as accomplished. When God reveals His plan, it will take place. All flesh will see the glory of the Lord because God has spoken it. Now, how do you know for sure that all flesh will see the glory of the Lord? Verses 6 through 8 compare people with grass. Now, I will not. It would be shooting fish in a barrel to refer to Rick's camping announcement at this time. So, I will just let that pass by. Uh, But the Bible actually compares people to grass a lot. Uh, It's one of the common idioms and metaphors. And one of the reasons for this is, of course, culturally, there's a sense in which we would almost think grass is shockingly resilient. Uh, You cut it, uh, it grows back. You, You freeze it, you put it into a deep freezer and cover it with ice and snow, multiple feet of snow for months on end, and it thrives as soon as there's a little bit of rain and thaw. You can burn grass, and later it will grow back. It's one of those resilient things there is, actually, but it's also a fascinating uh, little example of how transitory things can be. In the culture of this, uh, of Isaiah, there are hot, withering desert winds that can blow, and it doesn't take long, just a couple hours, this hot wind blowing, and all of the green grass turns brown and dies. In fact, there also can be plants that because of the uh, shallow soil, this is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about uh, the, the, the seed that's sowed on the rocky ground. It's like bedrock, not stony, it's, it's bedrock. And so the roots don't go down very deep, very shallow soil. The roots go down a little bit, they hit the rock, they can't go any further. So the plant, actually, the, the roots start going out sort of horizontally so that it can grow very quickly. The plant shoots up, but the moisture content is very small. And so as soon as the sun rises, Jesus says, the plant withers. The roots don't go down deep. So grass, for Isaiah, is something which it can grow up quickly. It can be withered by wind. The sun can destroy it. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And that becomes one of the dominant images of the transitory nature of human life in the Bible. What's your life? You are a mist. You are a vapor. You are grass. You grow up and you're gone. But... In contrast to you, in contrast to your glory and strength, the word of the Lord endures forever. And so you take the promise of God and you index it against all of your strength and knowledge. And you realize that God's word will endure long after you are gone, long after this generation is gone, long after dozens of generations are gone. Isaiah is prophesying, you know, 700 years, 700 odd years before Christ. And we're still reading his words about the word of God today. You know, 2,750 years later from the time he's giving this prophecy, we are still saying, look, the word of God endures. And this is proof of it. Where's Isaiah's generation? Where's the generation of your great-great-grandparents? Generations come, generations go. It's all transitory. It's all fading. It's all fleeting. But the Word of God endures. 
The Word of God is still proclaimed. The Word of God is still loved and taught and studied. No matter, no matter how much animosity there has been directed against the Word of God throughout history, and there has been a lot of opposition to this book. There's never been, there's never been any scrap of, of writing anywhere in the world that's been subject to more, to more uh, you know, critical attacks in, in terms of um, uh, hatred, in terms of archaeology, in terms of scholarship, in terms of you know, redaction, in terms of all sorts of things. People hate the Bible, and it still endures. It still endures today, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And all of the enemies of God's Word will, will, will rise and fade like grass. All of those who love God's Word will rise and fade like grass in this world. But the promise of God will endure forever. So, verses 9 through 11, speak up. If you're speaking the Word of God, if you're sharing the Word of God, if you're witnessing for the Word of God, don't do it timidly. Do it humbly, but not timidly. It says Isaiah, get up. Get up on a high mountain. Get up somewhere where your voice will carry. And with a loud voice, with a loud shout, proclaim this comfort. Proclaim that, that the God is coming. Proclaim every obstacle will be removed. Proclaim that all flesh will see His glory. Proclaim that the people are grasped, but the promises and the Word of God endures forever. Lift up your voice with a shout. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. The one whose word endures forever. The one who's coming to you through the desert. Prepare the way for him. He's coming. And you're going to see his glory. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. So you're going to get a contrast with the arm of God in verses 10 and 11. Here, the the mark is on his omnipotence. Look at his power. Your God is coming to you with all the power of his arm. And verse 11 doesn't change the image entirely, but shifts to how God will use the power of his arm to bring comfort to his people. He tends his flock like a shepherd in this culture that's actually a symbol of rule and kingship. But what kind of a king is he? He's the king who gathers the lambs in his arms. He's the king who carries them close to his heart. He's gentle with those who need special care and attention. See, the Sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. When God decides to comfort His people, He will sometimes send a messenger on his behalf, a herald, a prophet, to speak directly to the heart of his people with the intention of moving them into love. And God takes his arms, his arms of omnipotent might and power, And all of that strength in the omnipotent arm of God is used to cradle and comfort and with absolute tenderness pick up like a little lamb, His people, and to hold them close to His heart. So the comfort comes from the powerful arms of God holding us where we can hear His heart for us beat. That's the God who comes to us through the desert. That's the one who is loving us not because He is somehow weak and unable to do anything else. This is not a God who loves because He has somehow forgotten that He's, been whole, that he's holy. 
He's the same God of Isaiah 6, same God of judgment, but He comes to comfort and to love. His strength is used for tenderness. What's our strength compared to God's? Well, who has measured the water in the hollow of their hand? Go down to the ocean and just, just try to contain it in your palm. Or measure it by systematically scooping it all out. One handful, two handfuls. You know, see how many handfuls it takes before you've measured the entire ocean with your hand. I mean, you're trying to raise the question too, where would you put the water after you scooped it up? I have no idea. Uh, uh, but, but who can do that? Who, who can take their hand and sort of go up into the heavens, all of the stars, say, I'm just going to measure this out. It's one hand wide, two hand wide. I mean, it might take you an awful long time just to get to the moon, you know, let alone all of the heavens. Who are we? For God, the, the whole world, metaphorically, the whole, the whole universe just, just sits lightly in His palm. He knows everything about it. In fact, the nations to Him are just a drop in the bucket. If you have a whole bucket of water, how much, do you, how much significance do you put in one drop? That's all of the nations. People are grass. All of the nations are nothing. All of the nations are like fine dust. You know, if you have in the marketplace, you're going out, you're buying things, you're weighing things. You know, how much do you worry about like one grain of dust altering the measurement, you know, when you're weighing out all of your money against all of these goods? And God says, well, the nations, they're just fine dust on the scale. I don't even take them into account when I'm weighing things. That's all they are to me. Who, who weighed the mountains? Who put the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord? So, who was who in His instructor and counselor? In other words, what you have is the omnipotence, the, the incredible power of God, combined with the omniscience of God. The God who comes knows everything. He doesn't need our advice. He doesn't need our instruction. He doesn't need our strength. He doesn't need our resources. You know, all of these things you, you know, that we do, and, and we, we, we sometimes, even to this day, the way we carry on, it's almost like God is dependent on us or else nothing will get done. Well, He, he, he you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't quite need our hands to measure out the ocean. He doesn't need our hands to measure out the stars. He knows everything. He doesn't need our counsel. He doesn't need our power. In fact, verse 16, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burn offerings. In other words, even religiously, all of this world isn't enough for God. Lebanon is known for its great, e enormous trees and, and incredible forests. So whenever, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, the trees of Lebanon, that's what it's referring to. Starting like, talking like almost today, we'd say like, you know, the redwoods of California, that kind of idea. It's mighty forest. You could cut the whole thing down and use all of that wood for burnt offerings. You could, you could sacrifice every animal in the world, God says, and it's not enough. And the Hebrews knew that. You get that in the Psalms. He, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What's, what's this offering I'm bringing to him? It's, it's his anyway. There, there must be a deeper point here than just that. Before him, all nations, verse 17, are as nothing, and they are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. The nations are worthless to God. They are less than nothing to God. Now, that seems to introduce a fairly significant disjunction with what we're told about how God values people in the world. What does that have to do with John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Now the nations are worthless and nothing. More than that, why is God speaking to the heart of His people and gathering them up into His arms if they're nothing to Him? So clearly, this is not a statement of how God loves and values the nations. If you want to know how God values the nations, you look at the atonement of His Son, Jesus Christ, for God so loved the world. The motivation for atonement is love. God's love for the world. And so, in that sense, clearly the nations aren't nothing to God. He provides His Son for them. But in terms of power, 
in terms of status, in terms of prestige, you take me and compare me to God, and I am nothing. And we don't improve much by adding another person to the deal, or ten, or a million, or the whole world. That's the point. Compared to God, what is the world? Nothing. It's regarded as nothing. It is worth nothing in comparison to God. But in God's estimation, even knowing that, He loves the world not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of grace. And so God evaluates us on the basis of His heart, not our intrinsic deservability or lovability. He loves us because He's a God who loves the unlovable. He's an amazing being. With whom then, if this is true, who will you compare, who will you compare or what, then, with whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken Him? This is one of the reasons, there's multiple reasons, this is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is so against idols. Don't depict God in any form. Why? Because as soon as you do, you start reducing God. So that even the golden calf is really a bull uh, when, when Moses is on Sinai and Aaron makes the golden calf. You have to understand, what they were trying to do is they were trying to represent the Lord. And they were trying to do their best. God, you're so powerful. You've just led us out of Egypt. You are a mighty God. And there's nothing they can think of that's more mighty than a bull. So God, we'll depict you. We're worshiping you. And our visual depiction is of you as a bull because there's nothing more powerful than that. God says, how dare you reduce me to that? How dare you think that my strength can be compared to the strength of anything in creation? No images. Because as soon as we start having images, we subtly begin to, to think that God is like that just a little bit more. So we find someone really smart. We say, well, God's like that, just a little smarter. Or, or, some, or an animal. Really God's like that, but just a little faster, a little stronger. And what God is doing is saying, no, you don't understand. I am categorically different. You can't reduce me to any category in creation at all all. Who are you going to compare me to? All of the world is as nothing in my palm. And you're going to say I'm like something in that world? Or the image of something in that world? Don't reduce me. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. That is, He is transcendent. Its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. He sweeps them away. In other words, God is the creator. He is transcendent over the entire created order, and he's transcendent over human history. He brings up princes and brings them down. And this is the thing, too. You think about throughout history, the most power and privilege and pleasure anyone could experience would be being king in a monarchical state. You were the law. Anything you wanted, you got. Being king was the best. There was nothing higher in the social hierarchy than that. And God says, princes, rulers, they're planted, they're sown, they take root. I take them away. That's the lifespan of a ruler. How much more the baker how much more the, 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 the guy who builds the walls, the person baking bread. If the king's life is transitory, how much more anyone else's? God is in charge of human history as well as the creator. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live. This is a metaphor. You know, the, the, the next time you go camping, just remember, you, you, you set up that, that little tent of yours. You know, you, you, you nail in those pegs, hit your hammer, or hit, hit your thumb, you know, practice your sanctification. Uh, you, you, you try to get those, depending on what type of tent you have, you know, if it's old enough, you try to assemble those poles. 
And I never remember which one goes where. And, and I knew that pole line on the floor of the garage was supposed to be packed. You know, now the tent's a little on an angle like this. So we'll, we'll put our feet there where it's only two feet off the ground. And, or you have those, you know, the ones that assemble with all the little you know, sort of stretchy elastics in them. And you set up your tent and, and you get inside. And, and there's that tent that you've set up and you're so proud of yourself. You know, well, only took eight hours. And then you step outside at night. And, and that, that dome, the contour of the horizons and sky really is a dome, which is why that's the biblical language for God creating it in Genesis 1. He sets the vault. It's a dome shape if you actually just follow the contour. It's harder for us in cities with buildings, but, but you're, out, you're out sort of in, in the wild, and you can see this very clearly. And you kind of go, wait a minute, that shape is, is kind of like my dome tent. God just sets up the universe like his tent. And he just speaks and it's done. He stretches out the universe like his tent. Now, of course, in this culture, being nomadic, they lived in tents, so it is a little bit different. But the whole idea is, look, you know, you go camping, sleep out under the stars, you're sleeping in God's tent. He just sets it up to live inside of it. He is the creator and the Lord of human history. To whom, verse 25 again, then, will you compare me? Who is my equal? And the answer, of course, is no one. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings up the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Each of them by name. That is, he knows the nature. It's not just the, it's sort of a, a phonetic tag that he attaches to everyone. You know, it's not just that he knows that this one's, you know, Bob and this is one's Mary. It's that he actually knows their nature. He knows the essence of everything he's made, exactly what every star is, exactly how it functions in all of the universe, every natural law that he's imbibed, imbued it with, everything about it. He knows it through and through. And he, the language is actually military language. He marshals them all out. He calls them all out. He brings them all out. Today, that's far, more, that's far more duly impressive than it was even in Isaiah's day. Because although with light pollution, we see far fewer stars than he would have, we know about far more many stars than he ever could have imagined exist. We can see pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope and others. God calls them out each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of stars is missing. Not one. Most of us are lucky to remember the name of the Big Dipper. And God knows every name of every star. So then, why? Why do you complain that God doesn't know what's going on in your life? Why do you complain, Jacob, why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. He knows every star. He governs human history. He raises and deposes every human ruler. He is omnipotent and omniscient. He speaks comfort to your heart. He takes you in his arms. How can you imagine he doesn't know what's going on in your life? Your path is not hidden from God. Your cause is not disregarded by the Lord. He who knows the name of every star also knows the name and nature and function of every person. And he speaks tenderly to their hearts. Do not think in your darker moments that God has forgotten you or God doesn't know what's going on in your life or what's even worse do not think that God knows, but He doesn't care. Because He does. That's why He speaks comfort. That's why He comes to you. That's why He uses His omnipotence to hold you close and make you feel loved. Do you not know? In other words, you should know this. Have you not heard? In other words, yes, you've heard it. Start taking it seriously. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. In other words, do you think that God is growing tired of being with you? 
Do you think that God is growing weary? He, he was trying to help you, but now you've just worn him out and he's exasperated. No. In fact, not only does he not get tired, he gives strength to the weary. He increases power to the weak. So, so, so God is not too weak. And if, when we get to a point where we really are, are struggling in our weakness, he can give us power. He can give us strength. He has extra strength. He's additional strength. He's overflowing abundant strength to give us. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. In other words, even those who are strongest in the prime of life cannot endure everything. But, but, as you get older and your physical ability deteriorates, as you get older, and you know, I remember, many of you will remember Betty White. Remember Betty White? Golden Girls? <laughs> I've never watched it, just so you know, but I just remember culturally she was part of that show. Uh, Betty White, remember a commercial? I can't remember what it was advertising. Um, but but she, she said, yeah, nice, cheery senior citizen. Yeah, I remember her saying, for me, Exercise is a good, brisk sit. <laughs> and there are days when that's how I feel too. Yeah? Exercise is just a good, brisk sit. <laughs> no, we get older. Our bodies can't do what they used to be able to do. And our minds start to deteriorate as well often. Even the best their strength gives out eventually. What about those who are frail? What about those who are weak? Mentally, emotionally, physically. Those who hope in the Lord. No contingency on age. No contingency on physical strength or mental ability. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will. those who wait on the Lord, those who wait patiently, those who hope, those who are willing to wait. Why? Because of the promises of God. Because He will speak comfort to your heart. Because He will wrap you up in His arms. He will let you hear His heart. And you may feel like your cause is disregarded. You may feel like He's a million miles away. But He's not. He's right there with you. Wait in trust and faith and hope. And you will renew your strength because He will give it to you. You will soar on wings like eagles. You will run and not grow weary. You will walk and not be faint. God can do this for His people. And if that doesn't give you comfort, not much will. This is the God who comes to you with tender comfort and love joined with power and concern. Well, verse 1 talks about, it puts covenantal context, my people, your God. 3 through 5 is about the Messiah. Uh, we can't read verse 11 likely without thinking about Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so one of the amazing things says that people who are like grass are still being called by God into covenantal relationship with him today. Even today. You know, if you don't know God, even today you can, because He comes to you through His Son, Jesus Christ, to, to call you to Himself, to, to turn away from your sin, to trust Him. Jesus, all that wrath in Isaiah 1 through 39, it helps give us a category for Jesus paying the penalty for our sin, Jesus absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf, dying in our place on the cross, being raised to life just for our justification. And so God still invites us into covenantal relationship with Him. The sign of entering into a covenant relationship with God is baptism. This is the sign that we are united with Jesus Christ. This is the sign that we are trusting in His covenant promises for us. There is a debate in church tradition 
as to who this covenant sign should be applied to. Infants of children of believers or those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as believers. At Heritage College, where I teach, um, we do, I do a, a year-long course in systematic theology, and, and near the end, one of the things that we talk about are the signs of the church. And so we talk about the Lord's Supper, and we talk about baptism. And every year, uh, every year, interesting enough, some of my very, very best students are students who hold to infant baptism. And so one of the things we try to do in that class, we try to cultivate the most sincere Christian respect that we can for one another so that we listen. And, and I give them opportunity to, to share, you know, from their tradition, to help me articulate and, def- and defend their tradition as well as it can be defended. And, and the same for me, and we, we listen, we, we, and we love each other, and the goal is, is to say, look, as important as the sign of the covenant is, it's not as important as the covenant itself. As important as mode and subject of baptism happens to be, it is nothing in comparison to what it symbolizes, which is union with Jesus Christ. The new covenant inaugurated with His blood. That's what being a Christian is. It's knowing God through Jesus. And so today, uh, Mark and Vicki Lauder are going to be baptized and they've been believers in Jesus Christ for a long number of years. And they've come to believe in terms of conviction uh, that you know, they want to be baptized as believers in recognition that they know Jesus Christ. They are intentionally taking this covenant sign upon themselves. And so we're going to be baptizing them in just a moment. And again, in recognition that this baptism is, as every baptism is, It is an act that in and of itself does nothing. It is the reality behind the symbol, which is everything. And that reality is the God of Isaiah 40, who comes to us in the person of His Son so that we can be redeemed. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and uh, lead a song of worship, and then we'll have the baptism after that.